So we're going to be in Luke chapter 14 this morning. We're going to actually close it out. It will be verses 25 through 35. I'd encourage you to go ahead and turn there. It's, we've got a lot to do. We're going to jump right in. Uh, Jesus is, um, uh, he is carrying on. Luke is showing us how this idea of humbling ourselves and not being first in our lives is so vital to the Christian life. And so we're just going to kind of pick up uh, in a new scene, and we're going to, going to move forward in this next uh, this next passage, if you will. So, so beginning in Luke chapter 14, verse 25, it says, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down to count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, he has laid a foundation, is not able to finish, and all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall, it be, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, how many of you actually read the uh, user, end user agreements when you buy software? Like, you know, those things that, I, I don't know if iOS or Android does this. I know iOS does. Whenever they have major updates, they've got these long agreements that you have to click agree to to be able to download the update. And most of us, I don't think, read them. In fact, Forbes magazine uh, referenced a uh, study that said one in a thousand people actually read all the way through those. One in a thousand. And if there's two clicks required, like you're going to have to click a link to get to the end user requirement, like it's not just there for you. If a second click is required, the number goes up from one in a thousand to one in 10,000. Because that extra click is what makes all the difference in reading all of those words, right? I mean, it's, it's massive. The thing is, even um, we're signing our life away with a mortgage, we're, 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 we're seeing this fine print, and these pages upon pages of fine print, and I think most of us, if you're like me anyway, I did this, I listened to what the person said was on the page, and then I signed it anyway. I didn't slow down to read it. Jesus is not leaving any room for any fine print in the life of his disciples. He's not coming to people with a bait and switch. He's not drawing them in with this great show, providing and proving himself by miracles, and then later going to come around and say, oh, by the way, listen, there's a change of scenery here. He is, he is now on the road again, talking to the crowds that are following him, many of whom are simply coming to him because he looks good from a distance. They want to take something that they like and go back to their life the way they know it and enjoy it. But he, he doesn't save this for later. He brings it to them right at the beginning. He says to them in three conditional statements. If this is true about a person, if such and such is true, that person cannot be my disciple. 
We could sum it up with a question this morning as we seek to apply it to our lives, as we seek to understand it for ourselves. Is there anything or anyone in your life that you are unwilling to walk away from or give up in order that you could gain Jesus Christ? See, I'm not about a bait and switch either. I'm not going to save that question to the end. I want you to deal with it all the way through. Is there anything or anyone in your life that you are unwilling to walk away from or give up in order that you could gain Jesus Christ? Three times he, he says this, three times. If such and such is true, that person cannot be my disciple. See, Jesus isn't just about drawing crowds and feeling good about the massive number of people that are following him. He is not into church growth procedures or, or, or processes. He is not seeking just simply to be attractional. He demands, he, he demands this of himself that he is truthful, that he is calling people not just to come to him and, and take what they like and then go on. He's, he's calling people to come to him and commit to him. That he would be the preeminent, the primary commitment in their, their lives. And this isn't a new thing. It's not like all of a sudden Jesus just added this to his teaching repertoire. It's not like he's been going along the way and decided, you know what? I got all these people. I ought to figure out how to now make them think I'm awesome. Now that they're, they're here, I've got to figure out how to compel them to stay with me. Remember the dinner we just left. In every four of those scenes, in all four of the scenes, on all four of the episodes in that dinner, he was calling people to, to leave their self-righteousness, to leave their self-promotion, to leave their self-interest, to leave their self-absorption, to leave their self-assurance, uh, to leave their self-worship. He was saying that you're not first. I'm not first. All the way back in chapter 9, before he even heads to Jerusalem, as he's about to finish up his, his ministry in Galilee, he says, if you will not pick up your cross and follow me, you are going to lose your life. This theme is all over his teaching at every turn. Jesus will not share the throne in our lives with us. He will be our Lord and Savior, but he won't be one or the other. He is not going to sit on the throne of your life with you. If, you, if he becomes your Lord, he will be your Savior. If you come to him as king, he saves you. But if you come to him seeking salvation, he demands to be your Lord. If you come to him seeking salvation and will not submit to him as Lord, you lose everything. As desperately, as desperately as this self-righteous, self-absorbed, self-assured, self uh, uh, promoting and self-interested generation needed to hear this. Those, those people that Jesus was speaking to as desperately as they needed to hear this. We need to hear this. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed since that generation lived. 
Truth is, nothing has changed in these last couple of weeks. We still live in the same selfie world that we were living in two weeks ago, in which we're plastering our picture all over everything, seeking to ensure that we are front and center, trying to convince people how great we are. And maybe, maybe we're not the people who are out there trying to convince people how great we are. Maybe we're the sadists, you know, and we're like the people who are trying to convince people how much we have suffered. You know, it happens every time there's a new reality show. They start introducing the, the people on the reality show and how they connect us to them. So the difficulties as they struggled in their life. It's always really funny when somebody's not had a really hard life. They still try to find something and they try to... You know, they put melodramatic music between, uh, behind the, this, this uh, monologue of a person who really hasn't had it that hard, but they really try to play it up. And we really want people to believe we deserve much more than we already have. In this world where we define what good worship is, what, what's right worship, when God is going to move or when God has moved, we need to hear these words. Jesus is not going to sit on the throne of your life with you. But he will sit on the throne of your life if you'll get off of it. And here's the thing. We need to, I need to qualify this. I need to deal with it just real quickly because I don't want you to think that Jesus has set up some new law that we're supposed to live by. He's not calling us to save ourselves by our own effort of humbling ourselves. <clears throat> he doesn't, he's not got some new way for us to please him. He just knows who we are. Self-denial is not going to save us from our sin. Denying ourselves will not save us from our sin. But if we won't do this, we cannot commit ourselves to follow the one who can. See, Jesus knows you. He knows me. He knows the people that have been created. He, he isn't saying this because now we've got some law we've got to follow. He knows this because he knows that it is impossible for you and I to be primarily, primarily committed to two, of two people, to two things. It's a matter of degrees. So think of it in these terms, a matter of degrees. You can't possibly be going east when you're going west. You can't possibly be going south when you're headed north. It's a lesson I learned in the Army when I was a crew chief on helicopters in the military as a flight crew. We had to know our heading. We had to know where we were going. If we were off just a, a, a variance of a degree, just a, a small amount of a degree, it could, it could ruin our day. If we want to fly from here to Branson, we don't head north. Add to that the winds blowing us about, constantly having to reorient, constantly having to get back on track, constantly having to put the nose of the aircraft back towards Branson. Add to this the fact that, that, that in, in much of our tactical flying in the Army, we're not thousands of feet off the ground where we could have the advantage of a long distance to be able to see that we are treetop level seeking to, to fly as close to the ground to, to keep ourselves covered that's an amazing flying, just by the way, just as a side note, if you ever have the chance to fly Nap of the Earth, you need to say yes to it. It's amazing. But if we were off just a half a degree, a quarter of a degree, we couldn't get where we were going. 
Another way I learned this is as a crew chief in the army, we were practicing an escape and evasion training where there was this big oppositional force that was set up and, and we, we, we were in a downed aircraft situation. We weren't really crashed. It was training, but, but we had, we had uh, simulated the crash. We had certain injuries that we, were, that we were having to compensate for. There were things that we had to carry because of the injuries. There were certain things we had to destroy because if it got found, it was, it was sensitive material. So there was this whole escape and evasion training. Well, the first time I ever did this with this group of people, I, I realized why it was so important for us to learn land nav. Like I was, a, I was in basic training in AIT. I was, I was a helicopter crew chief, and they're trying to teach us about land nav. I'm like... Orienteering, I think, is what most people call it. But, but in the Army, we have a different name because we're cool like that. And, and I thought, why in the world do I need to? I'm going to be riding around on a helicopter. I don't need to know how to land that. I, I fly where I go. Well, the first time we did that simulation where we had to escape and evade opposing forces, be captured or die, that was the option. I realized how desperately we needed to know how to land nav. To be able to pick out a point on a map. So the first time it happens, the first time this training goes on, we're, we're, we got about a three, four mile hike. I can't remember how far it was. I just remember it was, it was a long ways away. And the place we were going on the map looked like, I mean, it was just barely big enough for a helicopter to land. And so on the map, the clearing was like a pinpoint kind of thing. You know, I mean, it wasn't, wasn't even an inch around. And we've got this clearing that we're headed to if we, if we didn't have the right heading, if we were off just a half a degree, we wouldn't have been found. And by the end of that day, what was crazy is by the end of that day, we had all ran out of water because we're a bunch of aviation guys. We weren't prepared to be out in the woods. We'd run out of water. We were all de- dehydrated. It was hot. It was miserable. We decided to, to ditch a bunch of stuff we were supposed to be carrying just because it was a decision along the way. It's like, hey, my life is worth more than this. So when those pathfinders landed in that field and they came into the tree line and they rescued us, we really felt like we were being rescued. It was important that we understood and we stayed on our heading. It was important that we found that field. Another way of looking at this, maybe a little bit more uh, biblical, a little bit more religious, maybe a couple of weeks ago, you remember we talked about repentance and how we can't possibly be repentant without turning away from one thing. Remember, we defined it as a change of mind that changes our affections, that, that changes our direction. And I stood two people up here in front of you. I put one person here and I put one person here. And the person here represented sin and the person here represented Christ. And we couldn't possibly be going towards sin if we were going towards Christ. We couldn't possibly go towards Christ without turning away from sin. The reality is, is that Jesus knows there is no way for you and I. There's no, we don't have a capacity for this. We don't have a capability for this. We are limited in this. We will either go towards one or the other. We can't go towards both. Even if it looks like just for a short while you're walking with him, if you are off a degree from him, there comes a point when you are going to a different place. He's not giving us some law. He's just simply stating the fact. You cannot sit on the throne of your life and expect that you will submit to him as king. It is impossible for any of us to do. And so he comes to us. And with three 
uh, qualifying statements or three conditional statements, two parables, really three parables, he confronts us in this. He says our commitment, first he deals with our relationship. He says our commitment to him, our commitment to Jesus must be greater than to any other person if we're going to follow him. Look at the list of people. This would have shocked them. It should shock us. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, well, for some of you, that might be easy. Maybe you had a bad dad. Maybe you had a bad mom. Maybe they were abusive in some way. For some, that may be easier than others. But those are the preeminent, the primary people in our lives. When we're growing up, they're the ones who, who feed us, who protect us, who teach us. If you will not hate them, you can't be his disciple. How about your, your wife, or, 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 or in the case of many of you, your husband? And children, your brothers and your sisters, yes, even your own life. These are the motivational relationships of our life. These are the reasons we do things. These are the, are the, are the purposes for which many of us live. But this is still about self-denial. Let me just show, show you how this is about self-denial. Just think about this. Has anybody ever asked you the question about why you wanted to get married? Why, why, why do you want to get married? Why did you want to marry the, the, the person you're married to? When I hear young people talk about this, when I hear young people talking about, hey, I want to get married to this person, and I begin to ask the question, why? So often it comes out because they make me happy. Well, he's my best friend. I, I looked some up online because I wanted real testimonies that you didn't, I just didn't have to give you anecdotes, but he's my best friend. My safe place. She makes me so happy. He loves me so much. She completes me. That made me think of Jerry Maguire, right? <laughs> you complete me. Oh, you had me at hello. <laughs> I've, never, I've never seen that movie. I'm just kidding, I have. As, as romantic... And as warm and fuzzy as those things might make us feel, who's at the center of those statements? Not the spouse. The one desiring the spouse. How about your children? I know this is going to get real personal. But I think this is probably a place where we struggle most. In Christian culture, I'm not just saying our church, but in Christian culture in America today, we have made... We have made our children our gods. We are motivated by every decision because of them. I, I, I can't do that. My son takes a nap at that time, and that just is off limits. Uh, we, we, we got to do this because my son or my daughter loves this sport. You need to know how destructive that is for your children. So here's the reality. When I was growing up, it was seen and not heard. And, and I think that pendulum is too far that way. Don't misunderstand me. But our pendulum has swung so far back that it now our entire lives are wrapped up in our children. And we have set them on a pedestal. 
to where they are motivating us more than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The reality is the person that most benefits from the fact that your children are getting a nap is you because you don't want to deal with a cranky child. You put them in all the things that they like because you long for them to like you. You will not tell them no because you're scared they'll run from you. I'm not, I'm not trying to be a jerk about this. Don't misunderstand me. I, th- I think you are trying hard to be good parents, and I love you dearly for that. I appreciate that. But our hearts will make idols out of anything. Even our kids. So I just want to, I want you to hear these words from Jesus. I want you to be warned of this. Because his language is strong. He's not messing around. If they will not hate their father and mother, their wife, their children, their brothers, their sisters, if they will not hate them. And we have to be careful here because Jesus, I mean, this is the guy, he's the one that said, love others like you love yourself, love your neighbor as yourself, love uh, one another in the way I've loved you, he says. And, and even he says, love your enemies. So we have to be careful. We have to understand that he's not saying we need to literally hate them. We need, we need to seek their destruction. We need to see this. This is a Hebrew idiom. It's, it's, a, it's a turn of phrase. It's a way of saying things in their language and in their culture. But it's still strong and it's still serious. You can see it in Romans where Paul writes this in Romans 9.13. As, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. You can find the original writing of that in Malachi chapter 1. But, but he says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. You know the story of Jacob and Esau? Jacob and Esau, they're twins. Esau's the firstborn, but Jacob tricks his older brother by moments, by, by seconds, he tricks his older brother into, into his, uh, giving up his birthright. But more than him tricking Esau, more than Jacob tricking Esau into giving up his birthright, God preferred Jacob over Esau. It was through Jacob that God had determined he would fulfill his promise to Abraham, that he would fulfill the covenant he made with Abraham through Jacob. It's not that he was out to destroy Esau simply for the sake of destroying Esau. But he preferred Jacob. Another example is Rachel and Leah, Jacob's wives. Genesis 29, 33-31. So Jacob went into Rachel also. You remember the story? So he's tricked into marrying Leah, Rachel's older sister, first. The father, Laban, had tricked him into it. And then he gets to marry Rachel. So Jacob went into Rachel also. And he loved Rachel more than Leah. And served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. See, it isn't that Jacob literally just hated, as opposed to seeking to destroy Leah, but he preferred Rachel. That was the woman he wanted to marry. That was the woman he saw and he longed to have as his wife. He preferred her. And his commentary on this passage, Philip Reichen, I think is helpful To hate in this sense is to have a preferential affection. 
It is to love one thing more than another, so that if it comes down to a choice, there is no doubt as to which affection we will choose. So hear me. I'm not asking you to hate your kids. I'm just pleading with you not to idolize them. I'm just begging with you to make sure that Jesus is the preeminent and primary affection so that if you were forced to make a choice, you would choose him. In all likelihood, that choice won't come to you as I've got to leave my child behind and just leave him stranded in the woods so I can follow Jesus. But in our daily decisions, we will be forced to choose Jesus' glory over our own in the lives of our kids. Every day, you'll be forced to make this decision. And you can either choose yourself or you can choose him. Let me just say this here. Let me just go ahead and make this point now so that I don't forget to get back to it later. When we prioritize Jesus, when, we, when he's sitting on the throne of our lives, when we have displaced every other thing, and he is the most important relationship in our life, that is when we become the best spouses. That's when we become the children that honor their parents. That's when we become the, the parents that love their children and don't anger them, but raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. That's when we become the people God intended us to be so that we're actually beneficial, so that we're actually good in these relationships rather than asking from them something they can't provide. Idolize your children too long and in too many ways and they will resent you. Teach them a respect that comes through the Lord and you'll earn their respect. Seek happiness from your spouse and see if it doesn't lead to your misery. You find your joy in the Lord and he will use your spouse to give you happiness. It's a whole different way of looking at things. We cannot put anyone first. We cannot let anyone take that place. And when we do, the reality is it's because we are seeking to take that place but Jesus says, no, it will not work. You cannot come to me and commit your life to me if you will not displace every other person from the throne of your life. And second, he calls us on our own lives. And you see it uh, in the closing of that first statement in verse 26. But then also you see it even more clearly, I think, in verse 27 when he says, you must pick up your cross. If you will not pick up your cross... You cannot be his disciple. Our commitment to Jesus must be greater than to our own life if we are going to follow him. And we look back on this. Here's the reality. The people standing there hearing Jesus say this, they had no idea. They didn't, even, they didn't comprehend. Even his closest followers who had heard him already prophesying the fact that he was going to be crucified, even they didn't get it. I mean, it's happening, and they still didn't get it. I mean, they didn't understand what was happening. But you can be sure that they understood what it meant to pick up a cross. You can, be under, you, you can be sure that when they heard that term and when they heard Jesus say those words, they understood the rejection and the humiliation and the pain that he was calling them to. Crucifixion was a way of life for them in the Roman Empire. They saw it regularly. 
He's saying, you gotta, you got to get over that. you got to get over keeping up the images that make people accept you or that, make, that you think make you acceptable to others. you got to get over the idea that you're going to be humiliated in front of people. For his sake, you got to get over the idea that to come after him and to live like he did and to preeminently commit yourself to him, you might lose. You might lose your very own life. Now, obviously, we don't deal with that much here, but but the reality is, is that there could come a day. It's not that it doesn't happen. Was it just last week we heard about Egyptian Christians being martyred again? I think David Gooding's comments on his passage are, are helpful. He says, a man carrying his own cross along the street of some ancient city was, a normally, was normally a condemned criminal or a defeated rebel sentenced to death, deprived of all rights and possessions, and on his way to execution... Everyone who claims forgiveness because Christ died as his substitute thereby confesses himself as a sinner who has forfeited all his rights. He's forfeited all his rights and everything except what the grace of Christ gives him. What are you trying to maintain in your life? We we don't want, I, I, I can't evangelize that person. They may not like me. It may offend them. They may may make fun of me. Pick up your cross, Jesus says. That's a whole lot worse than being made fun of. That's a whole lot worse than being unfriended off Facebook. That's a whole lot worse. That's ridicule and rejection and and pain. But here's what happens. So we're like, okay, well, I'm going to get into that. I'm going to pick up my cross. And then we begin to make everything that we suffer about the martyrdom that we're carrying around. You know, like, oh, man. I'm suffering for Jesus. My car died. I'm suffering for Jesus. I'm weighing about how far to go with this, but let me just say, I mean, I got cancer. I'm suffering for Jesus. I don't really have cancer. I'm just trying to use that as a point, but, but that's not suffering. For Jesus, that is not picking up a cross. Don't misunderstand me. That's suffering. I get it. We lose a car. We lose our health. We lose. I I, I get it. It causes trouble. But that is not what Jesus is calling us to. Everybody's going to endure that. He's calling you to something distinct and different than the rest of the world. In his commentary, Norval, Norval Geldenheis, and I don't know if I'm saying that right. The, the guy's name is crazy, but, but it's a great commentary. Uh, I would encourage you to read it if you, if you want something to follow along with. But he says, the general idea that these words of Jesus about bearing the cross refer to passive submission to all kinds of afflictions like disappointments, pain, and sickness, and grief that come to man in this life is totally wrong. The people to whom Jesus spoke those words fully realized that he meant thereby that whatsoever desires to follow him must be willing to hate his own life and even be to be crucified by the Roman authorities for the sake of his fidelity. This is particularly identifying yourself with Christ, particularly living for his honor, particularly putting him as preeminent motive and preeminent uh, commitment of your life in such a way that others can see it and you might actually risk 
your, your reputation. You might actually risk friendships. You might actually risk your own life for it. To identify ourselves with Jesus Christ is commit ourselves with him, to him so completely that we would not shy away from publicly making sure that his name is made renowned even at the expense of our own. We've got to hate our own life, he says. If we will not get off the throne of our life, if we will not give up our life, we will not gain the one he has for us. Third, he calls us on our possessions. And I think really in verse, it's uh, verse um, 33, I think. It, well, let me find it. Yeah, verse 30, 33. So therefore, anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. I think really this is a, a kind of a summary statement that deals with those first two, but also goes a bit broader. All that he has entails not just the relationships, not just the, 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 the things that, that our own life, our, 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 our own reputations, our own uh, images that we're trying to protect in the world that we live in. He's not talking about just those things anymore. He's talking about everything we have. So I think that this includes our possessions. I think it goes so far as to say that everything we have must be committed to him. Our commitment to Jesus must be greater than to our possessions if we are going to follow him. I think maybe this is most clearly illustrated by the rich young ruler that talks about in Matthew and in Mark where the man comes to Jesus and he's saying, hey, hey, I, I, how do I get eternal life? And Jesus is like, well, hey, what are the, what's the law say? And he lists all these commandments and he says, look, I've done all that in his self-righteous, self-assured way. I've done it all. Jesus says there's one more thing. Sell all you have and give your possessions to the poor. In Matthew 19, 20, 22, this is how that story plays out. The young man said to him, all these I've kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess, give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven and come follow me. When this young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So he couldn't see the treasure that he would have in Christ. He couldn't, he couldn't even fathom how that was better. He couldn't let go of what he had here. His whole life was built on his great wealth. And Jesus isn't against us owning possessions. He's, he's, not a, he's not standing opposed to us having stuff. He's not even against the, the majority of the American people being a wealthy people in regards or in relation to the rest of the world. He's not against that. But he stands opposed to us holding on to it instead of laying it down that we might follow him. There is nothing. Listen, there is nothing in this life worth losing what's to come in the life. Or what's worth what's lo losing the life to come. Let me say it again. There's nothing worth in this life worth losing what's coming in the life to come. I screwed it up again, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> the thought is there. I hope you're picking up when I'm laying down. So he, he, he confronts us on these three fronts. Our relationships. Our, 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 our own lives. In all of our possessions. He confronts us in every, all three of these areas. And then he kind of, he, he hits these two parables to bring it home. He hits these two parables to help us really see it. First is a parable about a man who's going to build a tower. Who has to sit down and figure out, can I afford to build this tower? If I can't and I get halfway through, what happens? 
humiliation. The other is about a king. Well, there's an army coming against me, and they got 20,000, I got 10,000. What? Can I win? If you can't go into it knowing you win, then it's a foolish decision to go into it at all, right? The best thing to do is to go and make peace. Jesus is calling us not to some emotional decision that happened one day in our past, but to determine that everything that we are about from here on out, can we afford to lay it down so that we can have him? Is there anything in your life? Is there anyone in your life that you cannot remove from the throne in order that he can sit there? Is there anything or anyone in your life that you're unwilling to walk away from or give up in order that you can gain him? Is there anything or anyone in your life that you love so much that you can't love him first? There are clear similarities in both of these parables, but I think there's an important thing we need to see in the distinction between the parables. In one, a man is building a tower of his own free will. In another, he's being attacked by a king that comes against him. The truth is, is we need to ask ourselves these questions. Can, can we afford, can we afford to follow Jesus? If you'll let go of everything else, if you'll not hold on to one last cent, if you'll not preeminently put anything else first, you can. And when you lay all that down, it's not that you're empty-handed. He fills your hands with his grace. He says, now I'm giving you enough to go the distance. I am giving you enough that you can walk the whole way so that you can finish the tower so that no one's making fun of you in eternity because you couldn't finish. Can we afford this? When we get rid of everything else, when we quit, quit clinging to everything else, when we quit hoping that our relationships will do it for us, we can. When we quit hoping our possessions will do it for us, we can. When we quit believing that we can do it on our own, we can. Because when we empty ourselves of ourselves, then we can finally grab hold of all that he's given us in his grace. Then we can finally enjoy the fullness of his grace. So yes, then you can afford to. But the other perspective, I think, in the distinction between these two parables is can we afford not to? The king is coming with 20,000 against your 10. You will not win. You are not powerful enough. I guess the question is, is he worth it? Is he really worth it to you? I appreciate Spurgeon's words here. These words are not, I didn't put this quote in the, cost whatever it may, true religion is worth the cost. We are like the man with the black pest, with the black pest, I guess that's like the plague. The black pest upon him who knows he is dying and yet yonder is a drug which will heal him. Physician, says he, you ask so great a price that each drop costs me a diamond. 
You are demanding more than its weight in choicest pearls, but it does not matter. I must have it. If I do not, I am a dead man. Then what will it profit me that I have kept my gold? It is the case of every one of us here present. We must have Christ or perish forever. And it will be better for us to cut off our right arm and to pluck out our right eye than that we should be cast into hell fire. There is nothing in this life worth losing the life to come. Don't be deceived. Hear his call. If you won't do these things, you can't possibly be my disciple. So where do you sit today? The truth of, of this is, I think, most of the people sitting in this room, the reality is that you are his disciple that just needs to reorient your life to him. You've got to get your heading right. You've got to get off the throne of your life. You've got to put him back front and center. You've got to follow him. You can't possibly go where he's going if you won't go with him. And he is not going to go with you where you go. But he'll let you go there by yourself. Set it down. I can't determine what that is for you but I have full confidence in the spirit of God that dwells in his people, that he can convict you and confront you with what's necessary. Every one of us have these things. I have these things. I'd be glad you're getting to sit through a 45, 50 minute sermon. I've dealt with this all week long. And I'm, not trying to, I'm not trying to put myself against you. I'm just saying it's been a rough week. If we will not put it down, we will not get to walk with him. And I want you to walk with him. And it may be, it may just be somebody here that has grown up in church, lived their whole life clinging to their religion, that's never really committed themselves to the way of Christ. If you will not follow him, if you will not put him first, if you will not commit your way to him, you cannot be his disciple. Don't cling to the things of this world because you think they're so great. They will leave you empty. Come to Jesus Christ. and Find him to be your Lord and your Savior. Let's pray. Father, I don't doubt there's not a, that there's a person in this room that doesn't have something to deal with in this moment. So I just would ask you now by your spirit to meet us, to challenge us, give us strength to respond in repentance. Help us to turn from these things that we prioritize over you, that we love more than you. Help us. Help us to get off the throne of our life 
so that you can sit there. Jesus, thank you for making this so clear, for not leaving us wondering so that we might know the assurance of our salvation. I pray these things in your name.